0: The History of the World Podcast Written and presented by Chris Hasler Volume 3 The Classical World Episode 57 The Huns Let's start this week's episode by making a brief overview of what we have learned about the Huns during this podcast. The main thing that we do know is that they arrived in Europe from the Asiatic steppe. They migrated westwards, consuming land and bringing it under their control. The people of these lands were either made subject to the Huns or had to flee westwards to escape them. Those who fled westwards spilled into the lands of the Roman Empire and this sequence of events undoubtedly sped up if not caused the complete collapse of the Western Roman Empire. So this is what we do know about the Huns but their emergence and their disappearance is quite mysterious. Their time in history is quite brief especially when we consider how terrifying their advance into Europe was for all of the people of Eastern and Central Europe. The Huns were a nomadic group of tribes from the steppe and so for these reasons they are not completely unlike the Scythians from last week's episode. However the Scythians have been subdued many centuries before and another nomadic group called the Sarmatians emerged in the steppe lands of modern Eastern Europe. Both the Scythians and the Sarmatians were assimilated into the societies of the lands they occupied and their cultures and bloodlines had become diluted to the point of there being no apparent distinction. So when the Huns arrived, it would have felt like a very unfamiliar wave of terror their lack of familiarity and their sudden appearance raises questions about their origins. The 6th century Gothic historian called Jordanes gives us somewhat of a mythological explanation of their origins being linked to the product of unclean spirits of Scythian lands and Gothic witches. But modern historians look further east, even as far as the lands of Mongolia. Jordanes describes the Huns as a stunted, foul, and puny tribe, scarcely human, and having no language save one which bore slight resemblance to human speech. This could almost be a description of the reaction of the first Homo sapiens encounter with a Homo floresiensis, as described way back in Volume 1 during. Episode 10. It's not a glowing account of a people who actually successfully terrorised half of the continent. A Roman historian from the time of the Hunnic invasions was Ammianus Marcellinus, who wrote about the Huns that they seemed to spend their entire time on horseback, which we recognise as a fundamental aspect of historical steppe cultures. That they have a strong relationship with horses. As we described with the Scythians who thrived during the previous millennium, horses were highly valued for their abilities to assist with nomadic transport and migration and their military versatility combining speed with power. The Scythians held their horses in high regard and it seems that it was recognised that Hunnic success was linked to their mastery of horsemanship. One strong theory about Hunnic origin points towards the modern country of Mongolia. If we regard nomadic steppe people to have a general itch to migrate westwards, then it is plausible that the Huns could have originated in this area. Some other historians argue that we don't necessarily need to look that far east and that the modern country of Kazakhstan can be claimed to be the Hunnic land of origin. If the Huns had originated from lands so far east, then the only place that we could go for any written clues would be to ancient Chinese scripts. The Chinese describe... A Eurasian steppe culture that existed around 3 to 600 years earlier than the emergence of the Huns in classical literature. This nomadic group of tribes were known to the Chinese as the Xiongnu tribe, who originated as traditional enemies of the Chinese and even prompted construction of sections of what would become the Great Wall of China. The Xiongnu would eventually fragment with the eastern tribes being subjugated by the Chinese and the western tribes drifting west into steppe obscurity. It's those western tribes of the Xiongnu that disappear from written records who intrigue historians. Some believe that they are ancestral to the first Turkic tribes with there being customary links. But others believe that they are ancestral to the Huns with there being an etymological connection between the names. We can't be completely sure though, and there are a number of theories relating to all of the relationships of steppe cultures with each other. The other mention of the Huns that we have made previously was back in episode 4, about the Sasanian Empire of Persia. We spoke of how from the 4th century a migration of different tribes started into the eastern lands of the Sasanian Empire. Firstly, we have the Ksianites who have been speculated to have been an offshoot of the Huns as they were their contemporaries. Their name Ksianites is suspiciously similar to the Tsiongnu of centuries gone by. The biggest impact came in the following century with the threat of the Hephthalites who have also been called the White Huns which give us a very confident link. Once again, the precise relationships remain unknown due to a lack of first-hand writings by the cultures of the steppe. Step culture. All of the steppe cultures were of a type and they may not have been closely related to one another, but they certainly would have shared cultural aspects that would have not been necessarily the ilk of their developed neighbours such as the Europeans, Persians and Chinese. Like the Scythians and Sarmatians before them and the Turks and Mongols after them, they would have been somewhat nomadic and they would have all had advanced expertise in and a dependency on horseshoes. Hunnic agricultural style is much more pastoral than the more sedentary and therefore non-nomadic societies. Their cooking style was observed as being much more rudimentary than their classical world neighbours. Though we should never fall into the trap that the steppe societies were in any way backwards as a classical world scribe might enjoy describing barbarian tribes. They were very much a part of their contemporary world with religion, trade, craftsmanship, with agricultural expertise and a formula for survival and even success among these classical cultures that would have you believe that they were highly advanced by comparison. The Huns were expert light cavalry warriors with that same successful horse archer tactic that brought military success to previous steppe cultures. The composite bows which incorporate bone stiffened tips were an advance on the Scythian bows. Classical world armies were shocked by the efficiency of the horse archers and had to learn to defend themselves from such attacks as well as learn and incorporate the skill into their own military. This is not totally unlike the nature of chariots when the Hyksos introduced this military vehicle against the Egyptians during the 2nd millennium BCE. The Egyptians would go on to incorporate this into their own military. We told this story during Volume 2, specifically Episode 13. The Huns held the horse in high esteem, which once again links us back to the Scythians from last week. There were even reports of Hunnic warriors sleeping while mounted on top of their horse. Westward expansion. The westward expansion of the Huns was swift and devastating. In a European landscape where the Goths had migrated to southeast Europe at a leisurely pace, where they would settle the lands around the Black Sea, and the Roman Empire was slowly reforming in a much more religiously tolerant land with its new capital at Constantinople. Possibly a desire of the Huns to move from the Kazakh steppe to the Pontic Caspian steppe may have caused them to cross the Volga River which empties into the Caspian Sea and move into the lands of the northern Caucasus in around 370. This is where they encountered the Alans who we recognise as an Iranian culture of the Caucasus. When the Huns moved into Alan territory the Hunnic nature showed its routine attitude by slaughtering many Alans, incorporating many others into their ranks or causing them to flee westwards. So we immediately see that the Huns look to increase their numbers whenever they encountered a new group of peoples during their migration. They are not particularly known for taking prisoners. So the Hunnic army increased in size with the integration of Alan tribesmen while those that survived without being assimilated ran off into the lands of the Groitungi those gothic ancestors of the Ostrogoths no doubt to explain to them about how scary the Huns were should they come and it's that sense of fear of their lightning fast raids and their ruthless and heartless attitude where no man, woman or child was spared from the wrath that gave them a reputation that preceded them. The Huns continued their advance westwards across the Don River and then the Nipa River into the lands of the Sarmatians, another steppe culture. But these lands had been occupied by a Gothic tribes, specifically called the Groitungi. So there was now a Gothic and fusion culture living in these lands. And in 372, the Huns subjected the Groitungi to the same treatment as the Alans, you were either slaughtered, assimilated or chased away. Those that were chased away crossed the Niste River into the lands of the Tervingi, another Gothic tribal society who were ancestral to the Visigoths. By now the Hunnic army now contained Alans and Goths and was considerable in size which was just as well because after the lands of the Tervingi would be The Roman Empire The Tervingi were fundamentally the peoples who appealed to the Romans to be able to settle within their territory as they were now being forced over the border by this relentless Hunnic advance The tension between the Tervingi and the Romans became unbearable and escalated into the battle that we covered in episode 54 called the Battle of Adrianople which resulted in the Roman Emperor Valens being killed and the Tervingi Visigoths being able to almost raid at will around their settled Roman lands. Amazingly, the Romans actually turned to the Huns for assistance in dealing with these troublesome Visigoths and some Hunnic mercenaries actually supported the Romans in their ongoing Gothic conflicts. Eventually, the Visigoths and the Romans sought a peace agreement. The Visigoths were allowed to settle and they would be subject to the Romans. It would be in the 390s that the Huns actually started making their own raids of Roman territory. Many Romans were terrified. However, we must remember that the Huns were a group of tribes with many localised chieftains and from the Roman perspective they were a barbarian race, the same as the Goths, the Vandals and the Alans and the Swabi, as well as many others of course. Sometimes it would serve the Romans well to approach one set of tribes to help them to subdue another set of tribes with rewards of land or money being offered. So where this could apply to the Huns is no better illustrated than with one of their leaders called Aldin. Aldin successfully defeated a Roman Magister Militum, which is the name they use for their chief military commanders, and sent his decapitated head to the Roman Emperor in Constantinople. This was always going to give a clear message of fearlessness from the Huns towards the Romans. But we also see that the well-known Roman Magister Militum of the Western Empire, who we know as Stilicho, actually approached Aldin to join him in dealing with some Gothic tribes. Stilicho would even use other Gothic tribes, so there was no united Gothic identity, which shouldn't be surprising considering their barbarian nature. Aldin helped Stilicho defeat the Goths, at the Battle of Faisali in 406, but it was only two years later that Aldin was ravaging the lands of Thrace, with the romano hunnic alliance being a distant memory. An important son of a Roman general was sent to the court of Aldin as a political prisoner. His name was Flavius Etius, and nobody could have known then how important he would be to the story of the Huns in Europe. The relationship between the Huns and the Romans remained precarious. But then, if we're totally honest, all political relationships from this period were precarious. The Germanic tribes were forging alliances that suited them in whatever political circumstance they found themselves in and even the Romans themselves were subject to imperial squabbling and attempted usurpations so we shouldn't be too surprised that the relationship between the Huns and the Romans was edgy. The Huns understood that there would be political advantages to having the right emperor on the Roman throne and potential Roman usurpers knew that their cause would stand a better chance of success with barbarian support. The Rise of Attila Around the year 430, two brothers were at the forefront of Hunnic politics as their leaders. Their names were Oktar and Rugila. They had managed to unite the Huns to some degree under their leadership and unity would become something of a formidable presence in Europe. In 430, according to the Christian historian called Socrates of Constantinople, Octar burst from excessive consumption one night and died, leaving his army to be routed by the Burgundians. This left his brother Rugila in sole charge. There were many Hunnic soldiers who had fled from Hunnic service in order to exploit the riches and opportunities of serving under the Romans. Rugula wasn't particularly happy about this and he demanded of the Eastern Roman Emperor Theodosius II that those Hunnic mercenaries be sent back to Rugula and the Hunnic Empire. Some of these Hunnic mercenaries had even fought against their own during the Hunnic raids on the lands of the Balkans during the 420s. The Romans did have a level of respect for the Huns and they were even paying them a tribute as a preventative from further invasions and this may have been agreed in the aftermath of the Balkan raids. Rugila was putting pressure on the Romans and was on campaign against them in 433 when he was killed. So now the two brothers Octar and Rugila were dead and the Huns had lost their leaders. Octar and Rugila had another brother called Mundjuk and he himself was a Hunnic chieftain. Mundjuk would have two sons and their names were Bleda and Attila and it would be these two brothers who would become the new rulers of the Hunnic people. Attila is the Attila that has become the most famous of all Huns in history. With regards to his childhood and upbringing, we really don't have much to go by. We can assume that he would have been vigorously trained to be a Hunnic warrior from a very young age, learning horsemanship and archery to a very high level. As we already know, the relationship between the Eastern and Western Romans during the 5th century was fragmented. For example, when Ioannis was the emperor in the West, it was opposed by the Eastern emperor Theodosius II, who worked hard to instate Valentinian III in his place. The politics of the two halves of the Roman Empire could be different and at times in conflict with each other's. So when tensions were high between Hunnic tribes and Constantinople ruled by Theodosius II Valentinian III was happily utilising Hunnic mercenaries in his battles against the Burgundians So it is impossible to paraphrase the relationship between the Romans and the Huns at any point because both entities were not operating as a united nation and with each leadership change could be a political shift that would change the balance. So it is better to look at the relationship between the leaders of the respective tribes and nations. By the reign of Valentinian III, the young Roman who had spent some of his childhood in the Hunnic royal court called Itzius was now back in Western Rome and serving under Valentinian III as his main military general. It was Itzius who campaigned against the Burgundians alongside Hunnic mercenaries. In the meantime, Bleda and Attila were putting pressure on Emperor Theodosius II in the east by threatening military action if he didn't meet Hunnic demands, including inflated tribute payments. The Huns really had the Romans in a difficult position and a statesman of eastern Rome signed the Treaty of Margus in 439 which agreed to the Hunnic demands to return all mercenary Huns as Bleda and Attila's uncle Rugila had requested during his lifetime. It also gave a Roman agreement to double the tribute payments to the Huns. There was an advantage to the Romans to this agreement if we look at the bigger picture though because with the Huns on their side it would mean that they could utilize them to protect their northern borders because if the Huns were happy with the agreement, they wouldn't want any Germans or Persians jeopardizing it. This would mean that Rome could send more troops to Sicily and North Africa to defend their realm against the aggressions of the Vandals. However, Bleda and Attila would claim that the Romans had not returned the Hunnic fugitives and therefore was in breach. Of the agreement so the Treaty of Margus had already hit the rocks within a year of its signing. In 441 Bleda and Attila had mobilised their army and breached the Danube border therefore invading Roman territory. This was an absolute disaster for both Eastern and Western Rome because the Huns had become so militarily powerful that the Romans couldn't resist their advances and many cities were destroyed from Illyricum in the west to the outskirts of Constantinople in the east Both the eastern emperor Theodosius II and the western emperor Valentinian III had no choice but to sue for peace with Bleda and Attila of the Huns as there was now a direct threat to Constantinople itself the Hunnic demands of the Romans was now around three times the amount of the original tribute during the reign of Rugila. So the relationship between the Huns and the Romans had reached unprecedented levels of intensity. In the year 445, Bleda died. The cause of his death is ambiguous. There are historians who claim that it was simply death during campaign but others believe that it was at the hands of his brother Attila and that if it was then it may have been because he learned that Bleda was plotting against him. It's almost impossible to know the real truth. The reign of Attila The death of Bleda may have been a mild distraction for the Huns in the grand scheme of things as their pressure on the Romans did not appear to relent as a consequence. The Huns had mainly been at odds with the Eastern Roman Empire and during Attila's first years as the sole ruler of the Huns, he relentlessly ravaged the Roman provinces of Moesia which is mainly centred on the modern country of Serbia. And sent all of the booty back to his heartlands centered on the modern country of Hungary. Eastern Rome was terrified, and Emperor Theodosius II initially made a stand against Attila, refusing to pay tribute. But the terror of the Huns once again caused Theodosius to backtrack and Attila forced him to agree to a monumental 2,100 pounds of gold in annual tribute, six times the tribute before Rugula first hiked it up. Constantinople had to weather an earthquake before Attila threatened to breach the city walls. So Theodosius had no choice. Attila then looked towards the Western Roman Empire and started scheming about how he could acquire similar wealth from there. His devious plan was to tell the Western Roman Emperor Valentinian III that his sister, Honoria, had betrothed herself to him and that he would be claiming half of the Western Roman Empire as his dowry. Valentinian was horrified and instantly sent envoys to tell Attila that this wasn't going to be happening. As far as Attila was concerned, it was happening, and he would be mobilising his army to make sure of it. The Western Roman Empire knew that conflict was inevitable, and so their best man, Etius, was commissioned to lead the Roman army, and the one thing that the Western Roman Empire had were peoples who benefited from their favour, so they would fear less favourable conditions if the Huns prevailed and were prepared to fight alongside Ezeus to support that. Other peoples would believe that the spoils of war were available if they were to join the Huns and defeat the Western Roman Empire and help themselves to their possessions. We're going to explore this chapter of European history more closely next week when we see Attila go up against the Roman Magister Militum Aetius who if you remember was actually brought up in the Hunnic court. Aetius was equal to Attila's invasion of Gaul in 451 and Attila ultimately withdrew and changed his plans. This time Attila would attack the lands of Italy itself. The people of the Italian settlements were all too aware of Attila's reputation for heartlessly destroying towns and villages and so many settlements were abandoned as the population fled before they would be inevitably slaughtered by the Huns. When Attila reached Rome, we cannot be sure why he didn't take it. There are a number of speculated reasons. Firstly, there is a rumour of a plague breaking out within Attila's army and that this forced Attila to withdraw from Italy. However, there are other speculations such as Pope Leo speaking to Attila and Attila withdrawing as a consequence of the conversation. This seems unlikely because the Romans themselves recognised Attila as a non-Christian So the question is why would Attila care what any Christian bishop would have to say to him? That is unless the superstitious side of Attila was appealed to as Attila may have been reminded that when King Alaric of the Visigoths had sacked Rome just over 40 years previous, he died shortly after. So maybe Attila feared the same fate. The Decline of the Huns. Whatever the reason, Attila and the Huns withdrew from Italy without attempting to sack the city of Rome. A lot of texts cite that what Attila did next signifies that Attila gave up on his attempts to marry Honoria and claim the suggested dowry of half the Western Roman Empire. Personally, I'm not so sure. It is said that Attila married a beautiful young woman called Ildico, but Hunnic tradition encouraged polygamy and so Attila wouldn't have allowed any marriage to prevent him from taking the hand of the emperor's sister. Nonetheless, it is actually what happened at the wedding of Attila and Ildico that resonated more. Attila, who may have been in his forties at the time, feasted at his wedding and celebrated his new marriage. He retired to bed with his new wife, and the following morning he was found to have choked on his own blood, and with his new wife crying beside him, Attila had passed. Some later writers suspected murder at the hands of Ildico, but there really isn't a lot to say such a thing categorically. It does seem more likely that overindulgence was the cause of death, with much consumption of food and alcohol. Attila's death in the year 453 was a blow for the Huns. Attila had proved himself to be brave, fearless and an intelligent leader. The rule of the Hunnic tribes would pass down to Attila's sons and this would see the tribes of the Hunnic Empire split apart and become more distant from one another. So the Huns had really lost their centralisation and their mystique of being unbeatable when Attila died. We see a decisive battle between the Huns and the Gepids in 454 at the Battle of Nedal, which possibly took place in the modern lands of Serbia. Attila's eldest son, Elak, was defeated and killed at this battle and this would eliminate dominance of Central Europe with many Germanic tribes taking back their traditional lands. The Gepids themselves were of Germanic origin and would establish their own kingdom close to the former heartlands of the European Huns. The power of the Huns had been forced back to the lands of the Pontic Steppe equivalent to the former lands of the Sarmatians before Gothic integration there. There they survived under the rule of another of Attila's sons called Dengazich, and during the 460s Dengizic would attempt to approach the lands of the Eastern Roman Empire once more but this time the Eastern Roman Empire was ready and prepared to go to war with the Huns and after two years of fighting Dengizich was decapitated during battle with his head being taken to Constantinople for a good traditional parade and display for all the people to see. Attila would have shuddered at the thought of such an outcome. It would fall to the responsibility of a third son of Attila called Ernak to seek peaceful terms with the Romans, and from this point we do not see the Huns as any kind of political threat ever again. The tribes just seemed to quietly get on with their lives without antagonising anyone else at any kind of significant level ever again and it may have been down to more nomadic migrations westwards from the steppe that the Hunnic bloodlines were diluted away in much the same way as the Scythians and the Sarmatians before them. They came in with a bang and went out with a whimper. By the end of the year 476 Those two great empires of Western and Central Europe the Western Roman Empire and the Hunnic Empire who had done great battle just 25 years previous were no longer a significant part of the map of Europe. That's it, that's the Huns. Thank you so much for listening and um, as ever if you want to write in to the History of the World podcast and let us know what you thought of the episode, it would always be gratefully received. The email address is historyoftheworldpodcast at mail dot com. And um, we often get people writing and just just give us messages, even if you tell us um, just where you're listening from um, would be great. Like Nancy Charak has, has written in from Tucson, Arizona. Um, saying that she's listening and, and thank you. Um, and um, we encourage you to visit the website as well the history of the world website. And there's plenty of places you can interact uh, with other listeners of the podcast. And there's uh, there's the Facebook page alongside the Facebook fan group, which has been started up by uh, one of our listeners, Jenna Osborne. And uh, also there's a discussion forum where you can get deep into the subjects um, and discuss it with other listeners. Uh, Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter, uh, Tumblr and uh, Instagram and even on TikTok. You can even follow the History of the World podcast on TikTok. That's uh, unthought of, isn't it? That's unheard of. Thank you. Uh, For everyone who has subscribed to any of the social media, and um, of course, if you want to support the podcast, don't forget to rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to us. And uh, if you if if that's still not enough for you, if you still think you can do more, then of course you can. You can click on the Patreon link and uh, sign up to make a monthly donation to the podcast. And uh, when you do, you get uh, you get put onto the list of Illuminati and um, for everyone to see so you'll be celebrated alongside all the others all the other wonderful people who have contributed towards the podcast and uh, you'll always be forever recognised as a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati as has Phil Hunt this week has become our latest member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati thank you so much Phil Um, it really does help uh, the podcast. So thank you ever so much. Right, let's have a look at some reviews. Uh Apple Podcast I always love reading out Apple Podcast reviews. Um they're just madness. Um we've got one from Armin Jahadi. Uh sorry, Armin Jahedi, I think that should be, um who's uh who's reviewed from Turkey. I can't recall. Um a review from Turkey. Um, Maybe I'm mistaken, but I think that's the first time I've seen that. Uh, He's he's put five stars. Thanks. Profusely thankful for this series. Please keep it up. That's a very kind review and very kind message. And then also we've got uh, Stuart 65 from the USA, who's put perfect scope and pacing. I found the podcast halfway through Roman history, and I really appreciate the depth and detail. It's got enough that you get a pretty comprehensive viewpoint, but not so much that you are lost in the weeds or get bored. Great work and I eagerly anticipate going back to the beginning and catching up. Plus, much better than listening to the gibbering fools in the news. Um, Well, I don't know, I mean, I'm over here in the UK, maybe there's gibbering fools in the news in the USA and, and I wonder if they're... The ones reading the news or the ones uh, creating the news. I wonder, I wonder who you mean, gibbering fools. Uh, But wonderful uh, message and uh, a lovely little, uh, amusing little uh, comment at the end there. So I really appreciated that. Now I've I've got no doubt due to the subject matter that this podcast will be uh, popular. Uh, This particular episode I mean about the Huns will be popular because um, I think all of these uh, barbarian tribes really capture the imagination of people and and, and people are genuinely very interested to find out more about them. And um, I'll go on to say um, that uh, one of the recent episodes that didn't seem to gather as much interest um, as the others uh, was the one about the Battle of Adrianople. And if you remember, that was the one where uh, Fritigan of the Tervingi, uh later to become the Visigoths, um, took on Emperor Valens um, after the uh, after the Goths, the Visigoths were forced over the Roman border, and um, it was it's a fascinating story. And if you haven't listened to it, you've, you sort of missed out on a bit really. There, the, the battle episodes aren't really focused on the. On the battle itself, so much as the circumstances of the battle, the the diplomacy that led up to the battle, and 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 the, and the way that things broke down and descended into battle, and then the aftermath of it, the repercussions of that battle. So the battle episodes are quite fundamental to our learning experience, and so we've, we we learnt a lot about the Gothic tribes and uh, and and how they were concertinaed up by the. Huns when they invaded, so I would strongly recommend listening. And, and there's so much to learn and discover from those episodes. So they they don't think that they're um, not worth listening to. I, I believe that they are. and And next week we're going to explore the the battle of uh, the Catalonian Plains, which is when um, Attila the Hun. Um, finally met on the battlefield with the Magister Militum of Western Rome, uh, Flavius Aetius, and um, I think that that is a really pivotal turning point in European history, um, and it involves so many different um, peoples of Europe, and um, and it's very much worth it's going to be worth listening to we're going to learn so much more about the Huns and Attila and, and the Itseus and um, I think it's I think it's not one to be missed I think they're a fundamental part of the story so uh, join me next week uh, for that episode and then after that we're going to We're gonna venture away from the general area. I know that I said a number of episodes ago we'd be leaving the Romans alone, and and here we are, we're continually talking about them again. Uh, But we really need to move on at some point. And so once we've put this story of the steppe cultures to bed, uh, we're gonna follow that little path round to India and the the steppe culture of the Kushans who, who ventured down in that direction. Uh, they ventured into lands of um, of Indian empires um, that had already been there, and so we need to catch up with that story, and then um, and then discover what happened after the Kushans uh, migrated into those areas. So we're going to be spending a few podcasts in India before moving on to China. Then we, we ought to have a, a look, a tentative look, I might say, because it's always a very emotive subject at the emerging religions of this period and we see that a lot of the modern religions uh, emerged during this classical age, during classical antiquity. And uh, then also um, we'll round off Volume 3 by visiting the Americas and seeing what uh, what was going on there as well. So that's long overdue, going back to the Americas, but... Nonetheless, that's it for this week. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great week, everyone. Um, Stay safe. Look after each other. Be well. Follow the rules. Always follow the rules because they're there to protect you. They're not there to suppress you. So don't be paranoid about them. Just follow them and uh, we'll all get back to normal as soon as possible. And uh, also don't forget, don't forget to be good come to the history of the world and join all the other hot welders on our wide range of social media why not support the podcast by clicking the patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the history of the world podcast illuminati Drop me a line at at historyoftheworldpodcast.mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.